Scripture this afternoon is from the Gospel according to John, chapter 7, verses 25 to 36. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? This is the word of God. Please have a seat. And now let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we come now before your word, um, we give you thanks that, uh, that by your word you accomplish your purposes, that, that by your word uh, you shape um, the hearts of men and women uh, and children to follow after you, that you make us into one people. Um, as Bradley said at the beginning, the church are those who are assembled um, into your presence, uh, those who are called uh, to worship you. And uh, we, are, we are very mindful uh, this afternoon, as, as we always are, that um, we're not here by our own um, intuition or, or, or by our own uh, strategizing uh, our own our own deliberation that uh, it is ultimately you uh, who have worked in our hearts it is you who have worked um, through uh, so many people in our lives our parents um, those who have gone before us um, friends who have shared the gospel with us um, it is you who have been at work uh, to call this people to yourself and to assemble us in your presence we give you thanks uh, we give you thanks that it is by your commands that we now come before you uh, to lift our, our cares, uh, our concerns, our anxieties before you. Father, you know the stresses and the anxieties of the past year. Um, many of them we have been able to experience together, and we thank you for that. We thank you for the, the ways in which we have been able to bear one another's burdens, the ways that we've been able to weep with those who have wept. But, Father, we know that there are depths of grief and lament and loss that, um, that even those of us who experience them have, have difficulty plumbing the depths of and difficulty articulating. And we thank you that even in these we are not alone. 
that we are never alone, that we can never uh, escape from your presence, that we can never get away from your spirit, um, that there is never a moment where there is not a man in heaven interceding for us um, who sympathizes with every one of our trials, with every one of our temptations, with every one of our griefs and sufferings, because Jesus was a man of many sorrows, uh, acquainted with grief. And so for those who are suffering, uh, for those who are grieving, for those who are lamenting uh, the losses of this past year, even the ongoing uh, losses, whether those be economic in nature or, or related to health um, or, or related to relationships uh, that have broken and seem irreparable, um, we lift these things up to you. We ask uh, that you would comfort uh, those who grieve, um, that you would be a refuge uh, to those uh, who feel that they're in the wilderness. Um, but would you also grant to us more of your spirit, that we even more would be able to bear one another's burdens? Um, would you please form us more and more into a church uh, that um, reflects your likeness, that proclaims your love to one another and to a watching world, um, that they may know um, that the Father sent Jesus into the world and has now poured his spirit out in order that the world might be saved and might know him. Uh, this, is our, this is our deep prayer, and again, we are grateful um, that you accomplish these very things in your word, uh, through reading your word, through preaching your word, sitting under it. Uh, and so as we approach it now, I pray, Father, that the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I forgot to say one thing at the very beginning that I do want to mention, so I apologize for reinserting a sort of announcement. Um, we are going to uh, share in the Lord's Supper um, this, uh, this afternoon, as we do every Sunday. Um, but this is now the second week that we are back to our normal way of doing that, where we'll have servers up front and where you'll be able to come up and receive um, the elements, the bread and the wine. Um, however, if you would be more comfortable, um, we do still have communion boxes available. They're in the back of the church where you came in. Um, if you would prefer uh, to partake of communion using one of those boxes, um, that is perfectly fine, um, and you are welcome at any point between now and the end of the sermon. Go ahead and go back and, uh, and get one of those, and I'll let you know when to prepare them. I apologize for not saying that up front. Okay, so uh, we're moving along uh, in the Gospel of John. We've only got uh, three more weeks uh, in the Gospel of John before we switch over to a summer series in 1 Peter. So we'll try to wrap up chapter 7, and then, and then we'll come back to this, uh, to John's Gospel, uh, next, uh, next winter uh, after, after Christmas. Um, most of us have certain songs just emblazoned in our memory whether we want them there or not, right? And for most of us, it's, it's the stuff that was popular when we were teenagers, like junior high and high school years. And so that means that if you're of a certain age, there was a, a certain album by Alanis Morissette that most of which is just burned into your memory. You know, there was, there was this one song, right, on that, on that album. It came out in 1996. I'll go ahead and date myself. Um, called Isn't It Ironic? And, and you remember the lyrics to this, right? Uh, it's, like, it's like a traffic jam when you're already late. It's like a no smoking sign 
on your cigarette break. Uh, it's like 10,000 either spoons or forks, I forget, when all you need is a knife. It's like meeting the man of your dreams and then his beautiful wife. And then the chorus says, isn't that ironic? Um, and the grammar nerds got out really fast on Alanis Morissette and pointed out that actually, in fact, none of those things in her song were actually ironic. If you get really specific about what irony means, you know, the things she was singing about were kind of coincidences. A couple of them were particularly poignant bummers, you know, but none of them were like strictly speaking irony. Well, why am I talking about this? I bring this up for two reasons. One is I do, with some frequency, just want to remind us all that the 90s were a silly decade. Um, I think that's just important to remember. Um, but more importantly, um, it's because in this passage in, in, in John 7, I want us to take a look at two things, uh, two instances of irony, two places where people say things about Jesus that are kind of true, they're half true, but they really don't understand the full significance of their words, uh, these, two, these two ironies um, that are spoken. Um, and I did look up the definition, and yes, I'm, I'm sure it actually, you know, when, you, when a character in a story says something and they don't understand the full significance of their words, that is, in fact, dramatic irony. So, lay off grammar nerds. Um, there's two ironies that we're going to see uh, this, this afternoon. One has to do with the question, where did Jesus come from? The other has to do with the question of where he's going. So we have, where did Jesus come from? And then we have, where is he going? And then, in the end, what these things really point us to, and what I really want us to see more than anything, is the question of, who is he? Who is this Jesus? John is using the device of irony uh, in this part of his gospel to teach us who he is. And of course, that's, that's what he wants to teach us more than anything else. We've been seeing that throughout the gospel. We've frequently referred to his, his purpose statement that he says in chapter 20, where he says, the reason I've written all of this, the whole point of this gospel, is that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that in believing you may have eternal life. So I want us to look at where is Jesus coming from, where is he going, and then most importantly, who is he? So first of all, where did Jesus come from? When we open up our passage at verse 25, it says, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is this not the man whom they seek to kill? So let's, let's remember, where are we? What's the therefore? Why are they, why are they saying this? Last week, Bradley introduced, um, as, we, as we go from chapter 6 to, to chapter 7, we fast forward about six months, right? We go from the Feast of the Passover to the Feast of Booze, one of the three big feasts that marked the, the Jewish calendar. And Jesus' brothers are going to the feast. Jesus says, I'm not going with you. But then, in fact, he does. He doesn't go publicly but he goes privately. Uh, he goes quietly. Um, and the reason he gives is, he says, my, my hour has not fully come yet. It's not yet time for me to go publicly and to announce myself. It's not the right opportunity. But even as he's there, he is drawing attention to himself. And we see this muttering in the crowd. Um, and when he, when he speaks to people, we saw this last week, it was with this kind of confrontational edge to it, right? Why are you seeking to kill me? He says, they, they, they say, you have a demon. Who's trying to kill you? 
And he just goes on. Why are you angry with me? How can you, why is it that you, you allow for circumcision on the Sabbath, but when I make a man's body well, his whole body well on the Sabbath, you get angry? Um, so there's all these confrontations that land in, in the verse that, that Bradley centered last week's sermon on, where Jesus reminds us of the need to judge with right judgment, with right discernment. This is the context. This is, this is what's happened just before the people of Jerusalem, therefore, are saying, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Um, they're confused. They're saying, why doesn't somebody stop him? Why doesn't somebody put an end uh, to all of this, um, all this disputation? And they ask the question, they say, could it be that the authorities, the ones who should be stopping him, could it be they know something that we don't? Could this actually be the Messiah? Do they know that? And that confuses them. And it confuses them because their understanding was that when the Messiah showed up, nobody would know where he had come from. Um, it's not entirely clear where that came from. We know that this was a popular belief because of the writings of um, early church fathers like Justin Martyr. He tells us that, that this is what they thought. It might have come from verses like... Um, in Malachi 3, uh, the, the, the prophet says, the Lord whom you seek will come suddenly to his temple. We kind of looked at that earlier when we saw Jesus come to the temple in, in John 2. But for whatever reason, that was their belief. They believed that the Messiah, when he arrived, would come out of nowhere. Uh, nobody would know where he, he, he had come from. And they look at Jesus and they say, we know where he comes from. We know his hometown. We know his family. It's possible that his brothers are there, that's, that's unclear, but they know where he comes from. Jesus' response to this is what points out the irony. They know, but they don't. They know where he comes from, but they don't really understand who he's from. Jesus says, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. This, in some sense, is just repeating what he said before, back in, back in chapter 5, that he is from his father, that to see Jesus is actually to see the father. To see his work is to see the father's work, to see the father's heart. And again and again, he said, that is something that you don't know, you don't understand, um, Elsewhere in the Gospels, that's actually one of the ways that Jesus defines what faith is. To be able to look at Jesus and to be able to say, when I look at this man, I'm seeing the heart of God. I'm seeing what God is up to. Um, one, of my, one of my favorite examples of this, I mentioned this in an adult ed a couple weeks ago. In Luke 7, there's this interaction with a Roman centurion who comes to Jesus saying, my son is sick. Um, and I'd like you to heal him. And he says, I know you can do it. He says, I know that you can heal my son because um, I am a man under authority. And when I tell someone to go, they go. And it's interesting what he doesn't say, right? What the centurion doesn't say about authority. The, the centurion does not say, I'm a man under authority. And so when I'm told to go, I go. He also doesn't say, I'm a man with authority. And when I tell someone to go, they go. 
what he says is, I'm a man under authority, and when I tell someone to go, they go. In other words, there's this, there's this two-way authority that he's talking about. And Jesus marvels. And don't worry, when Luke says marvel, it's not the same as when John says marvel. It's not a bad thing. Jesus marvels at this man, and he says, I have not found faith like this anywhere in Israel. And what he's pointing out, what the centurion is understanding, is he's saying, I know that you can heal my son because I know who you're from. I know who has sent you. I know the authority and the power that's behind you. And Jesus says, this is what faith is. And I haven't found faith like this anywhere in Israel. Uh, and that is what this crowd here in Jerusalem uh, isn't, isn't, isn't able to see, isn't able to pick up on. I think this presents a challenge to us as well. Most of us, most of the time, are working with certain presumptions and expectations about where and how God can show up, where and how he can be active in our lives. And so I just want to ask you, where is it that you expect Jesus to show up in your life? Where are the places where you expect God to be able to be at work? And where do you perhaps imagine that he's unable, that things are too far gone or too ordinary? Um, one of the things that's tripping these people up about Jesus is that he's just so ordinary. He's, he's a man whom they know. They know his family. They know where he's from. They know his backstory. There's nothing all that particularly impressive um, about him. You know, he's been doing these, these signs, and some of them are amazed at that. But he's just an ordinary flesh and blood human being. Um, Leslie Newbegin, in the, in the commentary that Bradley and I have been reading about John's gospel, makes this great point um, about what this is saying uh, about the nature of God and the, the way that God has chosen to reveal himself here. Because on the one hand, when God shows up in the person of Jesus, in a flesh and blood human being, um, on the one hand... This is, this is a concrete, particular individual standing in front of you. Someone, this is not an abstract idea of God. This is not something that we can just mold uh, according to our preferences about how we think God ought to be. He's, he's standing right there. This is the one. Um, and yet, at the same time, despite the fact that he is a concrete, particular individual, what he is revealing is nothing less than God, is nothing less than the heart of this infinite, transcendent God who made every one of us uh, and who cannot be contained in heaven and earth. And so again, to see Jesus is to see the heart of the Father himself. Do you expect to see God at work? in the mundane things? Do you expect to see him at work in the ordinary details of your life? On the one hand, on one basic level, he always is. One of the things that it means to say that God is our creator and that creation is from nothing is to say that without his constant, active, intimate participation, everything is just gone. Um, but even beyond that, 
even beyond that, without getting into the metaphysics of things, do you expect to see God at work? Not only when we gather for worship on Sunday, but when you go to work on Monday. Do you, do you expect to see him not only when we're in a prayer meeting, but when you're having a conversation with your neighbor or with your coworker? Do you, do you, do you assume, do you expect that God is present uh, in, those, in those moments? And what about in the moments of our suffering? Do we expect to see God present and active in those, in those moments? Um, we pray often, we have prayed a lot, even in this past year, to be delivered from suffering. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, there's nothing in the Bible that tells us that suffering is a good thing and that we should seek it out and not seek to be delivered from it. But one of the things that it means that God is truly infinite, that he is truly omnipotent, that he really can do anything, is that without changing suffering into a good thing, he can still use it to work for our good. Without having to turn the world upside down and say that suffering is actually good, he is able to work for our good in the midst of our suffering. I remember when... Um, uh, when ISIS uh, was, was, was on the rise um, and, and was just taking territory throughout the Middle East. And there was, there was a point at which, you know, they, they kind of blew through Iraq and some of the oldest Christian communities in the world, um, for the first time in millennia, weren't worshiping on Sundays. Um, I think Mosul in particular. There's a community there that hadn't failed to worship on a Sunday for um, nearly two millennia. Um, and, and, and they were unable to, to gather. And I remember reading a letter um, that, was, that was transmitted through an Anglican priest who uh, was, was, was stationed there. It was a letter written by these Iraqi Christians. Um, and it said, please do pray for us in our suffering. Please do, that, please do pray that God will deliver us from this suffering. But also, don't neglect to pray that God will sanctify the suffering that God will somehow use this suffering to build his body, even as we're currently scattered. Um, that's not an easy thing for us to pray. It doesn't come instinctively um, to us. Um, I think we have a lot to learn, actually, uh, from the church in places like Iraq, in China. There's a lot of great theology of suffering coming out of China right now um, that we have a lot to learn from. Even as we ask the question of, um, do we expect to see God at work in our life in these mundane ways or in the painful things, we also need to ask the question of, what are the other lives uh, in which we expect to see God at work? And that gets us to this second irony, this second question, which is about where Jesus is going. So if the first irony was about where he came from, now we want to look at where he's going. Um, let me read again, from starting at verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that will not find him? Does he intend to go the, to the dispersion? among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? 
What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Now, again, they misunderstand what he's talking about. Um, he, he is very simply talking about going to the cross, about going to his father. He's talking about this event that's about uh, six months in the future at this point, um, where he will go to a death that we deserved but won't have to die, um, and then will be raised and will be lifted up and will ascend to his father. There is a little bit of an invitation in these words, um, similar to what Isaiah says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Uh, in a sense, it, it is one way of him saying, I'm only here for six more months. Um, that time is, is coming to, to an end. Um, but the crowd, again, completely misunderstands. And they wonder, so, so where is he going? They, they see these officers that have come in. So the, the chief priests and the Pharisees have sent officers to arrest Jesus. Now someone's coming to try to stop him. And they, they're essentially asking, is he going to have to go on the run? I mean, is he going to have to get out of town? Um, they ask first, you know, is he going to have to go out to the dispersion? which would mean uh, Jews that had been scattered um, outside of Israel, um, the dispersion among the Greeks. But then they also ask, is he going to teach the Greeks even? Um, and there's a little bit of an edge to that when they, when they ask that. There's a sense in which they're belittling him, um, you know, sort of saying, is he going to have to stoop to that level where he'll be teaching the Greeks? Um, we know that the Jews thought of those outside of, of their people um, as, as being in some sense unclean. Uh, we know that this was a difficult thing for them. We know this um, because when we get to the book of Acts um, and see the disciples and the apostles wrestling with this question of the gospel going out uh, to Romans and Greeks and, and to Gentiles, um, it was not an easy question for them. They had to struggle with this. Um, I mean, Peter had to have that vision in Acts 10 where he saw like all kinds of different animals, clean and unclean, and hears a voice from heaven saying, take and eat of all of it. Don't call unclean what I have called clean. Um, and he goes back, and, and it's really five more chapters in the book of Acts that they're wrestling through this question of whether they're really supposed to be going uh, to the Greeks. The irony, of course, what these people really don't understand um, is that when they say, is he really, like, it, it, is he going to have to leave? Is he going to have to go to the dispersion? Is he going to have to go to the Greeks? That's exactly where he's going. But, but not only is he going there, more accurately, some of them, the disciples, the disciples are present here. Some of the people there will actually be the ones who themselves will go. Um, against all of their expectations, against all their intuition about who's in and who's out, uh, they will be going out. Um, when you guys went through the book of Acts uh, a year and a half ago, I guess you were, you were going through Acts, I think it was said frequently um, from this pulpit that one, one way to describe the book of Acts, you know, the full title is the Acts of the Apostles, but maybe more accurately would be to say these are the continuing acts of Jesus Christ through the apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. That gives you a better flavor of what's going on um, in, in the book of Acts. Um, 
The beautiful thing is that this was the plan from the very beginning. From the, from the moment that God makes a covenant with Abraham, he tells him, this covenant is not just for you. I'm going to be a blessing to you. I will bless you so that you and your family will be a blessing to all nations. And what we see happening at Pentecost, when the Spirit is poured out on all flesh, have you ever noticed that it's, it's kind of a reversal of the Tower of Babel experience? Right? The, 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 the Tower of Babel, um, you know, people are trying to stay together and amass their, their power. And in response to that, God confuses their language. Um, but at Pentecost, what happens? There's people who are gathered together, and miraculously, God comes and undoes the confusion associated with all these different languages so as to send them out. But the beautiful thing about that is that the way that he undoes that confusion isn't by returning them all to one language. It says each person was able to hear in their own language what Peter was saying, what the apostles were saying. The way that the mischief of Babel gets undone is actually by this beautiful kaleidoscopic uh, myriad of languages and tongues all being able to be spoken, all being able uh, to be understood and brought together into one church. And, and again, we would say this was always the plan. This time, not by looking at the beginning of the story, but by looking at the end. Right? If you look at, at Revelation 7, one of the things that John sees, same John writing this gospel, in Revelation 7, he says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the kind of God, excuse me, this is the kind of worship that God wants. Um, one of the beautiful things for us as, as a church, whether we're thinking about you know, our, our particular community here, whether we're thinking more broadly about the big C church, you know, and as, as we wrestle uh, with all of these, these questions uh, about race, um, about diversity, um, about culture, we know the end point, right? We know where we're going. We know how hard the questions are now. We know the struggles. We know how we bang our heads against these things and make mistakes. But we know where we're going. We've got a picture of what the end is like. Do you believe that Jesus is going to get what Jesus wants? Do you believe that in the end, God is going to get the kind of worship that God wants? And we've been given the privilege of being a part of moving towards that and one day being a part of that, of that people. And that should give us hope. Um, let me say one other thing. This should give us hope for evangelism. Um, this should give us hope for evangelism because what this is saying is that all of our instincts about who's in and who's out are wrong and can be ignored. Um, earlier in John 6, Jesus made the point, nobody comes to the Father unless the Father 
draws them, right? And we talked about how that's not a very popular doctrine, this doctrine of the election, you know, that, that God chooses uh, who, who is saved. But if you don't believe that, then you have to believe that your salvation in some way has depended on something that you have done. And if you believe that your salvation has depended on something you have done, then the flip side of that is that those who aren't saved, it's because of something that they've failed to do. And that just leads towards pride. That just leads towards a way of thinking that says, I'm in because I figured it out, they're not because they didn't. But if everyone whom the Father draws to him comes, and that's the determining factor, then there is nobody who's beyond the pale. There's nobody who's beyond the reach of God's voice. Nobody who's beyond the reach of the Holy Spirit. And so that gives us boldness in evangelism. That should give us much more boldness. Again, to know that we're not the ones converting anybody, but God's given us a role to proclaim the good news, to share these good news, and his spirit will go where it will. So where does this leave us? Who is Jesus? We've talked about where he's coming from and where he's going. And that's, that's not a bad way to understand who a person is. Um, one of the things that the early church had to, to wrestle with in talking about this one person with two natures, human and divine, was that it became impossible to describe a person as a something that could be described in such and such way. Because um, how do you get a something that is human and a something that is divine into one person? Instead, they started talking about, you know, a person is a someone who. A person is a history. A person is a story. So to go from where Jesus has come from to where he's going is a great way of saying who he is. It's his, it's his story that matters. So who is this? Well, because he's fully divine, on the one hand, he has no beginning and no end. But the mystery of the incarnation is that he stepped into time, that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And so he is the one who in the fullness of time was born of the Virgin Mary, who left his father's courts above and took the form of a servant and even submitted himself to death. And he is the one who is going into the far country. He is that true older brother who goes after the younger brother, not like the one in the parable. He goes into the far country and he's even taken outside the city gates to be put to death there. The book of Hebrews says we should go to him there. He is the one who, as Paul said, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection and who then ascended to the right hand of the Father to intercede for us and to prepare a place for us. I loved it in, early in this series when Bradley pointed out how that's wedding language. To prepare a place for you is what the groom would do for the bride. He's preparing a place for us, his bride. And what all this means is that to put your faith in Jesus means that that story 
becomes your story. Your story is taken up into that one. Um, we are not, um, so Stanley Hauerwas, one of, one of my favorite Hauerwas quotes, he says, the condition of, of being a modern person, if you're a modern person, it's to believe that you have no story except the story you told yourself when you had no story, which, which is, that doesn't work. Right? I mean, that's just, that's, that's emptiness. And I have to think that a lot of the cultural confusions that we're banging our head up against um, is because, as a people, we don't have a common story. We're losing sight of that. We've lost this. Jesus offers a story. Jesus is a story that we're taken up into, a story of a God who created us in love. And when we had rebelled against him, his response was to send his son into the world. Not to condemn it, but that through him the world might be saved. And it's a story that's ending in that great final wedding feast that we're waiting for. As a foretaste of that feast, we have this meal that Jesus himself has spread out for us, this table in the wilderness. Before we go there, let's pray together.